Hello, this is the Making Europe podcast to accompany the Making Europe book series. So, who did make Europe? This podcast may change your outlook on modern European history and how the European Union came to be. Each podcast in this series gives a new story that provides clues as to why the EU is potentially being unmade, giving insights to the challenges and debates facing the continent. Your interviewer is Geraldine Bloomfield. She will be interviewing the authors of the six editions to discover the alternative stories from the history of technology that shaped and influenced the Europe we know today. This episode features Johan Schott, who, together with Wolfram Kaiser, professor of European studies at the University of Portsmouth, has written the book Writing the Rules for Europe. Hello. So today I have with me Johan Schott, Professor of Comparative Global History, the Centre for Global Challenges at Utrecht University and author of Writing the Rules for Europe. It's a great pleasure to welcome you today, Johan. Very happy to be here. First of all, before we hear from you, we're going to dive into the story. Getting back on the wagon. The restoration of Europe to sanity and order. Engelbert Hondelink, a transport expert from the Netherlands, fled to England when the Second World War started. Wandering through the streets of London, he was contemplating how to contribute best to the war efforts. He found his direction. He was appointed to lead a wartime commission, preparing post-war transport plans. Hondelink, together with his fellow experts, discussed how best to manage the restoration of the railroads to pre-war times. By the time the war ended, they were well prepared. In October 1945, Hondelink published his views on the future of transport in Europe. He started with painting a dark picture of the post-war situation. How many railway wagons were lost, for example, and how much railway infrastructure was destroyed. As a consequence, vital products such as coal, fish, meat and potatoes could not be transported to people who were starving. Europe was in ruins. It would take many years to restore the transport systems which were crucially important for feeding people and for rebuilding industry. He concluded that transport was the primary problem in what he called the restoration of Europe to sanity and order. Rebuilding of tracks, stations, wagons and border crossing procedures had to be recognized for what it was, the remaking of Europe. Hondelink wanted to rebuild Europe on railway tracks. To do this, he realized, not everything had to be European. Some wagons, those that would not cross any borders, could be national. Others that had to cross borders could be European. In his view, two types of wagons had to be built, using different standards, national and European ones. 
Although experts such as Hondelink shared a political aim of restoring peace in Europe, their practice was technical. And this was on purpose. They argued that to restore peace, it was important to avoid political discussions and to focus on designing a technical approach instead. The design should be delegated to technological experts who would then develop the best solutions. Diplomats and even politicians were not to be involved because they would politicize all issues and thus make it very difficult to rebuild Europe. How did this technical approach work in practice? After the war, railway wagons were spread all over Europe and had to be returned. This led to diplomatic conflicts and massive tensions between the Soviet Union and the other Allied forces because each nation-state wanted to keep the wagons found on their land. Hondelink and his team of experts did not engage in diplomatic discussions to solve the tensions. Instead, they developed a standard wagon identification form, a handbook on wagons and a training. This helped in determining the owner of the wagons, even when they were repainted and changed. Subsequently, they developed a technical formula for distributing the wagons across countries. This formula defined a distinction between priority and non-priority needs against a baseline of vital needs and enabled them to calculate how many wagons each country should get given its objective demands. The formula, they argued, should avoid political tensions and conflicts, which it did to some extent. In two years, they managed seven to eight million wagon movements between various European countries. In 1950, during a growing Cold War conflict, experts managed to send 11,800 wagons from Poland to Western Europe and 14,800 wagons from Western Europe to Poland. Experts claimed that this had been possible not only due to the technical approach, but also due to their international spirit of collaboration, rejecting national prejudices and building on a long history of alliance with roots deep in the 19th century. Railway experts at the time argued that devising technical procedures for Europe could form the basis for more permanent European organizations, which could own more than 100,000 European wagons and possibly bridge the East and West, socialist and capitalistic systems. It would contribute to building a new Europe, overcoming national rivalry. Such an organization was not only promoted for railways, but for transportation in general for food and agriculture, for energy and for communication. These organizations would write the rules for Europe, for connections, exchange and coordination. They would shape the daily experience of many European consumers, how they move, communicated, stayed warm and ate. In the end, 
the railway experts created an organization called Europe, with an equivalent for East Central Europe. While Hondeling's dream for a pan-European organization did not materialize, both organizations collaborated. Eventually, this type of collaboration fueled the development of a European high-speed train network and various Eurorail passes. This technical approach of experts shaped the practice of many international organizations, including the League of Nations and the post-war European integration process. The wagon pool called Europe can be seen as a complement to the European coal and steel community and as a precursor of what is now the European Union. It explains why the European Union has technocratic features and why it has been successful in a range of technical areas, formatting European markets, governance structures and identities. However, it also shows its weaknesses, since these attempts led to a hidden integration of Europe outside the direct view of the wider public, which, in the end, led to a deep democratic shortfall of the European Union. So, Johan, what captured your imagination about this particular story? Well, it's the setting. Think about this. After the Second World War, uh, Europe is in ruins. Uh, there are people all over Europe in the wrong place. They need to, to go back to their own country. Uh, but we also have railway wagons all over the place. And these railway wagons are necessary to transport goods to people, to places where people have hunger. They are necessary for rebuilding the nation state, for economic growth, for development. Uh, and they are part of political struggle around reparations because nation states were claiming wagons. So how do you get to a fair distribution of the wagons was a deeply political issue with conflicts between the Soviet Union and the Allied forces, the other Allied forces, about how to, how to negotiate this. And there we have then this person called Hondeling, he's Dutch. Uh, he comes up with a solution, which is a technical formula. He says, let's not have these political negotiations. We can just calculate the best solution and he's able to do that. So it's so a technical solution yeah. to a political question. So we have these millions of wagon movements between countries following this technical procedure. And Europe was kind of quickly rebuilt, certainly in, in, uh, in, in the West, because they were thinking it would take a decade, but it took several years to rebuild. And this was partly due to these people who were able to do politics through technology. So can you tell us what ignited your interest in writing your edition? Well, I'm a traveller through time. In another word, an historian. Uh, I go to the past in order to understand the present. And in the present, what is an urgent 
issue is the future of Europe. Uh, in order to deal with the global challenges like sustainability and migration and other challenges. So I wanted to understand the origins of the European integration project. I do that from my own perspective. So I wanted to look at the role of technology. I'm an historian of technology. And technology is not only about the hardware, the infrastructures, the railways, the tracks. It is also about people the people who make them, and these people have values and ideas, and they put them into the technology. So I wanted to look at how Europe was shaped by experts, by engineers, by scientists. So is that why lots of people view the European Union as being technocratic? Yes, that is not only viewed in that way, it is deep inside a very technocratic uh, institution. And the reason it is that it was uh, the ideas behind it were born in the 19th century when the world was globalizing in an unprecedented way. Uh, the world was more global in the 19th century than today. There was more migration. And I'm talking here in not in absolute terms, but in relative terms. There was more trade. So there was a lot of movement, flow of people, of goods, of ideas across uh, borders, and this had to be regulated. And in order to regulate this, uh, we needed experts, because if you want a train to go from Amsterdam to Moscow or to Italy, uh, you need to make sure that the platforms have to follow the same standards, that the wagons can go from one country to the other. So you need experts to agree on standards. And at first, this was dealt with by diplomats, the foreign office, so to say, and experts were seen as helping the diplomats, but experts were not satisfied with this role. They wanted to arrange it themselves because they said diplomats are only playing political games. We are different people. So we do the politics through technology. So they started to design ways of uh, building relationships among countries. So they were doing international relations. And I call this in the book, uh, or we call this technocratic internationalism. Uh, because they, uh, the engineers believed that they could build peace in Europe through connecting people through technology. That they could uh, industrialize Europe. That they could uh, generate economic growth through uh, putting technology in place, communication technology, energy technology, uh, agricultural technology. Uh, so this, this, this was their uh, political project to unify Europe through technology. But the um, unifying through the technical aspects um, leaves out the social connections often. So how do you feel the experts involved in the technology dealt with the social side of connectedness between European nations? They were aware of these social aspects, but they didn't want to discuss them explicitly. So they, what we call, technified the subject. Uh, so, for example, uh, in the story uh, of uh, the post-war wagon distribution, railway wagon distribution, uh, the experts developed this formula where they 
calculated how many wagons each country needs. Uh, while in the end it's a political uh, uh, decision because the wagons are connected to how much food you have, uh, how much transport you can do. Uh, but the experts wanted to make these decisions based on technical formula. So if we look at present day Europe and the European Union in particular, how do the technocratic routes influence what's being played out? Well, uh, the engineers were building new organizations from the 19th century onwards and specific decision-making structures. And in these decision-making structures, they were the ones making decisions about the standards in Europe, about how to move goods, how to move people. And uh, these decision-making structures influenced uh, the League of Nations and influenced the way of thinking. So if you look at the EU, in the middle of the EU is the European Commission, which is a set of experts. And these experts uh, have power. So this was the way engineers designed it. So they would sit together in a commission and develop the standards. So uh, at the heart of the EU is a commission and a certain type of decision-making structure which comes directly from the way the engineers were thinking about how to do international relations. How about the social side in all of this? And um, I'm just going to take you back to my previous question because what kind of, when I say characters, were the experts? Um, I also mean what gender were they? What kind of personality traits did they have? Um, and is that somehow responsible for the taking the hearts and minds of people now to the project of the European Union? Do you think that had an influence? Well, it was certainly gendered in a sense. We're all men. Um, they... that, was, that was my point. <laughs> I see. Um, but, and again, so they didn't like politics, basically, because they thought, think about the first part of the 20th century, when there was this kind of conflict between communism, fascism, democracy, mm -hmm. and they didn't want to get into this conflict. So politics with a big P. Politics, they thought they can avoid this. And they can avoid this through using technology, and they can still contribute to very many positive ideals. Of course, their ideals are also political. So it's politics through technology. Uh, so it's a specific strategy, you could say, a political strategy to technify and focus on the technical side. Because the main point is that you can design social relations, economic relations through technology, through the networks you build. Uh, they are, as it were, built into the technology. So the social side is addressed. So how but successful do you believe they've been in that, particularly with what we're seeing in Europe at the moment, the rise of popularism, the uh, Brexit debate that gets manifested in many different ways in lots of European countries? How do you think the technocratic roots are influencing those debates? Well, they, well first of all... Um, Technocracy 
to some extent is needed in any complex modern society because you need experts to deliberate and discuss many issues. So food standards, for example, you need people to tell you, you know, what is what is what is uh, healthy and not healthy, and uh, and to input that in the debate. So we always have this issue in any modern society: what do you delegate to experts? But then also, how do you deliberate about it, and who's involved in making the decisions? So the participation. The participation, in, yes. Mm. Uh, so the EU was designed to make decisions in a technical way. And at the heart of the EU, the European Union, is the Commission. And the Commission is a set of experts, basically. And they they develop new policies. Uh, so you can see that this mechanism of consensus-seeking, deliberation by experts, is at the heart of the EU project, or the European integration uh, project. Um, and this is, as I said, the reason why it is so uh, technocratic. And it was successful at first, because, for example, for lowering of trade barriers was hugely successful. And it led to what we call the golden age in Europe. We have and a lot of biggest, economic growth. The biggest single market in the world. Uh, I'm not sure whether it's the biggest, because the US market is bigger, I think. But the uh, it's a big unified market which led to economic development and economic growth. Uh, of course, at the expense of other people, we have to also realize that the EU is also uh, protecting its own market. So I'm not sure whether all the developing countries were really profiting uh, from this development. But okay, so you could say that the welfare state was partly built on this European foundation, so this, this technocratic foundation. So this technocratic foundation had benefits uh, but there are also drawbacks because people are not involved and people do not feel involved. So the EU became more ambitious because in the, there's another project embedded in the EU which is to become a state, a European state. So some people United see United States of Europe. Yes, see it as a proto-state. And this ambition is difficult because there's no European nation. No, so or this, identity yes. in the sense of other yeah, nations. Yeah, so... so uh, I think there are two choices for Europe. One is to become more humble and to recognize it's a technical approach which can only do certain things and should not try to become a proto-state. But if it wants to become something bigger, then I think it should develop, for example, the European nation mm -hmm. aspect. So it should have a cultural policy where we talk about Europe, what it represents, what it means in the public sphere. Mm -hmm. There so, should be a lot more media attention. We should build up this European nation. You could say the European Union is part of 20th century history. 20th century history was a struggle between fascism, democracy and communism. That's the way the history has been written. What has been left out is technocracy. Technocracy attached itself to fascism, to communism and to democracy. So it's a fourth strand. So we're now in a position, for the 21st century, we have a whole set of new challenges around sustainability, around migration, around the fact that there is not a global dominant power anymore. And Europe needs to redesign itself. And it also needs to rethink the question about technocracy. So what is the role of experts in decision making? 
and it needs to build new institutions uh, to uh, combine democracy with technocracy. And this is a major challenge for Europe. Uh, and one of the important things for me is that it gives up this idea of becoming, in fact, a, a, a new state. It should see itself as a, a platform, a learning platform, uh, a platform for mediation tensions, for uh, discussing things, and not only with nation states, but also with cities. Because if you look at the future... The regional Yeah, aspect, the, the regional, yeah. the local aspect will have to become far more dominant and important for being able to confront with the challenges. So suppose that the EU could negotiate with cities about migration, mm -hmm. not just with nation states. Yeah. So there may be a lot of cities willing to, to work with migrants. So do you think we're looking at a reconfiguration of the European Union, but also the nation state within that, the demise of the nation state? Well, the nation state uh, is on the one hand becoming stronger and will have a large role to play in the future. Uh, so that's the problem of the EU, because the nation state is saying, stop, I don't want to give more powers to uh, the EU. So the debate is seen as a sharing of power between the EU and the nation state. That is not helpful. I think what we have to see is that there will be a need for a whole set of decision-making structures locally, nationally and internationally. And we need to redesign this architecture and also think about the role of engineers, scientists, experts in this process. Uh, and how to make sure this process is a democratic one. Because the global challenges we talk about are challenges that need the participation of the people. We cannot solve migration, sustainability, all these issues without involving the people. And that has been the approach, a technical approach, developing standards, which then people have to adopt and accept. That's not possible anymore. So to be able to deal with these challenges, we need to redesign the EU. And one of the important issues is also that uh, we may have Europe's of many speeds. Because now we want 27 countries in the future after Brexit 26 to agree on all the aspects. Well, as we know, that's often impossible. So if you can, we can develop many Europe's. And that was the, one of the good things about the vision of the experts they didn't look for one identity. They look for European identities. So there was a diversity for, of yes. Europeanness at the and, heart of their their attempts. Yeah, and if you look at the EU PR, they say unity and diversity, mm. but they never talk about how does this unity emerge. It's a kind of myth yeah. about there's unity in diversity. I think what's better is what you may call divided we stand. So we accept the diversity. And, but we still stand together, yeah. accepting the diversity and not assuming in unity that does not exist. Is there anything else that, you, that keeps you awake at night thinking about Europe and where in the next 50 years you've talked about how it should change, but what if it doesn't? Well, what keeps me uh, awake is if I think about... Uh, what's happening, you know, with migrants at the moment? You know, we they are dying in the in the sea, and we're doing nothing. Europe has become a, f uh, a fortress, and uh, Europe was always a kind of open space, 
And I think this quality of being an open space, we should somehow preserve. Uh, and uh, there are major challenges ahead, like, again, climate change, biodiversity. And I don't think our current structures are fit for purpose. So populism is a response to this. But this is also a response of the 20th century. We need a new response be fitting for the 21st century. And uh, we don't have that yet. So my hope is that Europe can become the platform for deliberating and discussing uh, new ways of managing, confronting these global challenges instead of being built on fear. Because currently, uh, European you know, Union is, is completely uh, absor absorbed by fear. So it's a European Union for the 21st century. It would be great. So that concludes this episode. To know more about the Making Europe book series, visit makingeurope.eu. To join the debate, find us on Twitter, subscribe to the podcast on your favourite podcast platform and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. The Making Europe podcast was initiated by Johan Schott, financed by the Foundation for the History of Technology, the Center for Global Challenges at Utrecht University, and the Netherlands Institute for Advanced Studies. The podcast is realized and produced by Sun City, Geraldine Bloomfield, and Susanne Lommers.